This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, a cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. So welcome to our podcast on heart transplantation. And uh, with me, my co-host is Dr. Mustafa Ahmed, uh, Director of the Interventional and Structural Program at UAB. We have also Dr. Uh, David McGiffin, who is the uh, actually Director of Cardiothoracic and Transplant uh, Surgery Program at the Alfred Hospital in Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for agreeing to get together today on this Sunday and Monday morning for Dr. McGiffin in Australia uh, to discuss heart transplant. So we know that despite the advances in pharmacological and, and uh, device therapies uh, for heart failure, the morbidity and mortality remains high, and many patients progress to end-stage heart failure. Over the last five years, heart transplant has become the preferred treatment for end-stage heart failure, with over 90% of heart transplant patients surviving beyond one year and uh, more than half beyond 12 years. In children, even, we have more than half of the patients surviving beyond 15 years. Unfortunately, the number of patients with heart failure keeps increasing, while the number of donor organs remains constant. The number of patients on the transplant waiting list keeps increasing, with patients that are older and have more complex disease, and a lot of them are supported by mechanical circulatory support device. So how do we prevent patients from dying while waiting for a heart? How do we increase the donor pool? How do we make sure that every single heart counts and prevent wastage? These are just some of the issues that we'll discuss today in our podcast on heart transplantation. But first, let's start with Dr. McGiffin. And uh, David, if you could tell us what, what is a heart transplant and, and how do you actually take someone's heart and put it in someone else's body? And if you could start by giving us a little bit of uh, historical perspective and, and start in 1967, Dr. Christian Barnard in South Africa with the first heart transplant. David. <clears throat> Thank you, Elaine. Uh, well, the history of, cardi of, of the early days of cardiac transplantation are really very interesting. And it didn't start with Christian Barnard. Uh, in fact, the early experimental work started with Charles Lindbergh. Uh, Charles Lindbergh, who uh, flew the uh, North Atlantic, uh, teamed up with Alexis Carell at the Rockefeller Center in New York. And he was very interested, or well, they both were very interested in, perf in perfusing organs uh, and uh, the technology that underpinned that. And that really was the start of interest in mechanical circuitry support that underpins cardiac transplantation, oral organ transplantation, and cardiopulmonary bypass for heart surgery. But the first heart transplant that involved a human was very close to where you guys are now sitting. It was in Jackson, Mississippi, when uh, James Hardy uh, in uh, 1964 uh, performed a heart tr transplant 
he sort of had a tremendous amount of criticism for this, uh, that the recipient was somebody who we wouldn't even consider for heart transplantation these days. The patient was uh, had uh, end-stage hypertensive heart disease, had a gangrenous leg. The criteria for brain death had not really not been established at that time. Uh, and um, there was a potential organ donor in the intensive care unit. This is in the uh, University Hospital in Jackson. Uh, and they felt that uh, for reasons that aren't completely clear that this donor heart could not be used. Um, so the re recipient was in the operating room. They amputated the recipient's leg and uh, they didn't have a donor. So Dr. Hardy took a poll around the uh, room with the other surgeons about should we use a chimpanzee heart? Because they would, they had chimpanzees uh, who uh, that, that, that they were using for experimental work. Uh, he took a poll. There was one abstention and, uh, and uh, a couple of uh, proceeds and a couple of reluctant proceeds. So they went ahead and put a chimpanzee heart in this patient. Uh, but the chimpanzee heart was very small and couldn't support the circulation for more than a couple of hours. Uh, and, um, and, the and uh, of course, the patient expired. But that was the first heart transplant involving a human in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, there's a lot of very interesting work that was done uh, because nobody really understood whether a heart, a human heart, could actually be transplanted and would actually work. And a lot of people aren't aware of this, or very few, very few people aren't aware. There was actually a human heart to baboon transplant. There were two of them. Uh, it was done at, um, in Virginia. It was done by Richard Lauer in 1967. Uh, at that stage, renal transplantation was underway and there was a donor. Uh, where the kidneys were being used and the renal transplant surgeon suggested to Richard Lau that there was this heart there that was available for whatever he wanted to do. And he, so he took this human heart and put it into a baboon um, and it worked. Uh, he got a bit worried about the propriety of what he was doing and terminated the experiment, but actually did another one uh, and this human heart survived in this baboon for four days. Now, as, as uh, um, concerning ethically that that experiment might have been to us now, it's really important to realise that that was unequivocal evidence that cardiac transplantation would actually work. Now, the, the first heart transplant from a human donor to a human recipient was Christian Barnard's transplant in 1967. Uh, and uh, that was actually, uh, because there were no, no established criteria for, for brain death and taking, heart, uh, taking uh, organs from a beating heart donor, that was actually a, a DCD donor, that is a donation after circuitry death. So they had to wait, they had to take the donor off a ventilator uh, and, and let the heart stop, just as we do now with DCD donors. 
uh, and then take the heart and transplant it. And that heart struggled for a while, but in fact, uh, in fact, uh, it uh, it was able to that they were able to separate from cardiopulmonary bypass, uh, and uh, the recipient. The recipient died uh, about eight, about uh, eighteen days later, and died of probably over immunosuppression. Uh, but it, well, that was the start. And uh, there's a very interesting um, uh, uh, book uh, that that um, details what was a very interesting race at that time to do the first heart transplant. And the book is called Every Second counts and it's it's a it's a it's a fascinating story about a, a worldwide race to do the first heart transplant um christian barnard uh uh did a, a second heart transplant on a on a dentist uh in south africa uh philip Lyberg, who survived about 18 months and then died of uh, coronary allograft vasculopathy and there's a famous photograph of philip Lyberg uh, uh swimming uh, after his heart transplant, uh, it's not. Uh, uh, there's an interesting backstory there that he probably was. That was not quite as it seemed, uh, because apparently he was very disabled after this transplant. So a group of his friends sort of put him in the water and stood back. Uh, photographs were taken, and they went and grabbed him before he drowned. Uh, but but anyway, it, but this was the start of the start of. Uh, uh, heart transplantation. Adrian Cantrowitz did a transplant. He was in, in New York. That patient was a child and only survived a few hours. And then uh, Dr. Shumway, who very right, rightfully is really the father of cardiac transplantation because he did all the, so much of the experimental work that underpins modern cardiac transplantation, uh, did uh, a heart transplant that was the third heart transplant. And then, not surprisingly, Dr. Denton Cooley uh, did a whole series of heart transplant transplants, including a heart transplant from a sheep to a human. Uh, that was, of course, unsuccessful. But the results were were, were very poor worldwide, and there was there was really a moratorium on heart transplantation because survival was so so unacceptable except a couple of centres kept going. One of them was Stanford. One was uh, La Pitié in Paris and, uh, and uh, Papworth in the UK. And it was because they kept going uh, and were the real pioneers of cardiac transplantation that they started solving a lot of the problems, uh, the problems of, of, of preservation of the donor heart, um, diagnosing acute rejection, trying to uh, select who they thought was the best recipient, uh, and um, and trying to get a, a regimen of uh, of immunosuppression, uh, and uh, and then of course, and, and that's and that's how cardiac transplantation advanced. And of course, one of the other important things that had to be decided was the uh, was the issue of the diagnosis of brain death. And until that was done, um, th there were surgeons who were actually at risk legally. Um, there, were, there, were, there were cases of, of uh, 
there was, for example, there was a, a, a surgeon in Japan who, in 1968, um, took the heart of a donor who had drowned and transplanted the heart, and he was charged with manslaughter. Uh, and um, uh, it took a it that cast a long shadow over cardiac transplantation in Japan. It was a long time before uh, that uh, the um, charges were lifted. Um, and um, there is another very interesting uh, transplant called heterotopic heart transplantation, or piggyback heart transplantation, which really started, which was started by Christian Barnard. Um, and that is you leave the recipient heart in situ and put the donor heart in parallel. Now, the reason why that started uh, was uh, because of the very long ischemic times uh, in uh, South Africa, and they needed the recipient heart to support the donor heart until it recovered from the long ischemic time. Uh, and uh, one of the indications also for heterotopic heart transplantation was where there was uh, irreversible pulmonary hypertension. So that the, the theory being that the recipient heart, um, uh, which had been, the recipient's right ventricle, which was already primed for the pulmonary hypertension, would, would supply uh, the uh, blood through the pulmonary circuit. And it was the donor left ventricle that supplied blood to the systemic circulation. And in fact, that sort of worked. And, and, and we actually, a long time ago, did a couple of these heterotopic heart transplants at UAB. But, the, but heterotopic heart transplantation is now gone because the indications that we, that were, were used then for heterotopic heart transplantation have really now disappeared with mechanical circulatory support and the continuous flow pumps. But the real, real advance in cardiac transplantation, survival in cardiac transplantation was the uh, advent of the uh, calcineurin inhibitor drugs, cyclosporine, tacrolimus. The results improved overnight. It was dramatic. I started cardiac transplantation pre-cyclosporine, so I saw it. The results just dramatically improved. Now, there are lots of other things that improved too, but cyclosporine made a huge difference to the, to the results. That's great, David. So um, how do you actually, as a transplant surgeon, how do you actually, is, I mean, this is a very long operation. I mean, you're talking about, you know, it could be very from four to 10 hours. How do you actually do that? I mean, how do you do the transplant? Well, the whole, the, the, the whole mechanism is sort of similar all over the world. There are sort of individual variations, but this is the, this is the uh, process. Um, in, in general. So we have a waiting list uh, of uh, potential recipients. And, and I will say that probably 70% of our patients on our waiting list have a, an LVAD. And that is, that's probably the same in most uh, large uh, cardiac transplant programs all over the world. So a uh, donor is identified uh, and there is declarate, and there has been determination that the uh, donor is dead by the relevant uh, laws in that jurisdiction. Uh, then there is consent from the family, uh, and then so that is now now we have a donor. So then there's a process to match 
a recipient and make sure that there is ad ad adequate cardiac function. So uh, all the investigations that, uh, such as an electrocardiogram, uh, an echocardiogram are performed to uh, demonstrate there is a good cardiac function. Uh, an electrocardiogram is important because, uh, you know, very, very occasionally you'll find uh, uh, abnormalities that um, need to be dealt with. For example, uh, we see patients with donors with WPW. Um, uh, it's very, very common to find a lot of nonspecific ST and T wave abnormalities on the donor electrocardiogram, uh, which are just a feature of uh, brain death because of the at the time of brain death, there is this tremendous uh, release of uh, catecholamines during the, the uh, Cushing response. Um, then we've established uh, there's good cardiac function. We in in patients with uh, who are at risk of coronary artery disease and uh, and uh, male donors over 50 years of age, uh, uh, female and female donors over 50 years of age, we require a coronary angiogram. Uh, and then the matching that goes with the uh, the matching process involves, of course, blood group. Uh, we have to make sure that there is no antibodies in the recipient that would react with uh, uh, donor cells, which could predict a hyperacute rejection. Uh, and um, uh, so that's so blood from the donor hospital is brought to the recipient centre and that is determined. The patients are particularly at risk of having what we call a high PRA, uh, where they've got excess, a large number of antibodies that could, re could re react with a wide variety of uh, antigens in the donor would be patients with previous pregnancy, previous surgery, previous transplantation. Um, we then have to make sure there's an appropriate size match. Uh, the, the big concern is transplanting a heart from a small female into a large male, which is something we really try and avoid. Um, then, uh, so we've we then established that there's that matching, size matching, blood group matching, uh, anti antibody antigen matching, uh, and a team is then dispatched to the donor hospital. Uh, and it's invariably in association with uh, uh, procurement of the liver and kidneys and often the pancreas and the lungs. Uh, so it's a very, has to be a very coordinated exercise to have each team in the operating room uh, and teams that have never met before. Uh, now that's a bit different in Australia because Australia is such a uh, numerically uh, in terms of population, such a small country, so the, there are only a few teams, so everybody's met everybody else before. But in the United States, uh, for example, uh, teams will be working together that have never met before. Uh, and But it's such a well-orchestrated operation now that, that that sort of thing can happen without any disagreement. So then the heart is preserved. Uh, the heart is preserved by... Uh, uh, infusing what's called a cardioplegic solution, which is a high potassium solution to pharmacologically paralyze the heart and cool the heart down. The heart is excised and then it's transported back to the recipient hospital. Uh, and one of the important considerations is what's called the ischemic time. The time 
from the when the heart is removed to when it's beating again in the recipient. And we need to make that as short as possible because there's a very, very clear relationship between increasing ischemic time and decreased uh, function of the donor heart in the recipient. And that, that relationship is magnified by increasing donor age. So let's say the safe ischemic time for a 20-year-old heart, is donor heart is somewhere around about five to six hours, but let's say a 50-year-old heart, it's about three to four hours. Uh, so that's an important consideration so that the to minimise the ischemic time, the recipient operation has to be underway uh, when the heart is coming back uh, and the ideal timing is that the donor heart comes into the recipient operating room as the recipient heart is being excised. Uh, now, that doesn't always work out that way because a lot of these uh, operations, these heart transplants can be pretty complicated, particularly if you've got to explant uh, ventricular assist devices or their complex congenital heart disease. Most of these patients have had previous cardiac surgery. So often that timing becomes a little bit, little bit challenging. Then the, uh, the actual tech, technical aspects of sewing a donor heart in is very, it's very straightforward. There are much more complicated and difficult operations in cardiac surgery than a heart transplant. David, uh, uh, before you get into this, uh, is there kind of an ex vivo kind of a perfusion system that, that you guys use to, to um, you know, preserve uh, or prolong or reduce the ischemic time on the uh, donor heart? Uh, no, but that's, a, but that's one of the really uh, interesting, er interesting areas now in all organ transplantation uh, and particularly heart transplantation uh, is to increase the ischemic time without the penalty of this phenomenon of primary graft dysfunction. Primary graft dysfunction is one of the very important um, complications that increase morbidity and mortality uh, after cardiac transplantation. And primary graft dysfunction is often unpredictable uh, and uh, often requires recipients to uh, have um, mechanical surgery support, such as ECMO, for a period of time until the heart recovers. Uh, and that just contributes to mortality and, and morbidity. So there are two ways, uh, two sort of machine perfusion uh, um, strategies that are currently under investigation. The first one is what we're called is a transmedics machine. And the transmedics machine is uh, allows the heart to be uh, beating and it's warm and it's perfused warm. Uh, that's, that machine is used for DCD donors and it's donation after circulatory death. So I'll just mention, I'll just clarify DCD donors first. So DC, so brain dead donors uh, where there's been a, a neurologic injury which has resulted in brainstem death and so uh, satisfies all the legal requirements uh, for declaration of death. So the, the 
so we can proceed then with removing the donor heart um, uh, and it's beating up, in the up, up until the time that the cardioplegic solution is given. DCD is different. These donors have had a profound neurologic injury, but they are not brain dead. So you can remove the endotracheal tube and they'll continue to breathe. So because they don't satisfy the criteria of brain death, we can't use the standard brain dead pathway. So what we do in those circumstances, and, and this, is, this has really been pioneered by St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, what is done is that, the, that all life-supporting therapy is withdrawn. So, uh, so inotropes are stopped, endotracheal tube removed, and the donor dies. Uh, now, that, that sometimes it doesn't progress, uh, usually does, and it usually progresses because the upper airway occludes. Uh, when that happens, uh, the heart stops. Now, there are certain legal requirements. There's a, usually a standoff period after the heart stops. Uh, and as soon as the heart, uh, as soon as that legal requirement or that standoff period concludes, which is usually somewhere either be two minutes or five minutes, depending on the jurisdiction, the donor is brought rapidly around to the operating room, the chest opened, and the heart removed and uh, placed on this transmetic system. Now, it's a lot more complicated than that, but that's basically how a DCD uh, heart donor is concerned. We have a very long history at the Alfred using DCD lungs, which work just as well as as uh, lungs from brain dead donors. Um, we don't currently do DCDs uh, because the, the transmetic system is very expensive, so we've got that consideration. Um, now, so that's for DCDs. Now, there's a lot of interest in what's called hypothermic ex vivo perfusion, and I've been very involved in this experimentally. And I think this is the next horizon in cardiac transplantation, being able to extend the ischemic time. I'm not talking about for, for an hour. I'm talking about for 8, 10, 12 hours without the penalty of primary graft dysfunction. Uh, so this, there's a machine that uh, we're investigating as a consortium in Australia uh, of the Alfreds and Vincents and a research group in Brisbane, you know, up in Queensland, where we have a model of brain death in sheep. Uh, and the donor heart is removed and placed on this machine. So it's at a temperature of eight degrees. So it's not beating and it's perfused with a cardioplegic solution and, and I think this is the huge conceptual leap, um, that is a surgeon in Sweden named Stig Steen made this conceptual leap by saying that a heart in a, on a perfusion system is equivalent to a heart in a brain-dead donor. That is, neither have a functioning pituitary gland or vasomotor centre. And so in this cocktail that we perfuse the heart are brain death hormones. A little bit of epinephrine, norepinephrine, a little bit of cocaine to prevent reuptake at the synapse. So we can use very low doses. T3, T4, insulin, corticosteroids. And then what we're doing in Brisbane, 
So we take a heart uh, and put it on a perfusion system for eight hours, and then I transplant the heart. And these these hearts work normally, absolutely normally. So we go ischemic times of nine and a half to ten hours with normal function. Uh, and it is one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. And it's even more complicated than that because if we use our usual cold static storage, that is, we take the heart, put it in ice slush, and then which is what we do every day in cardiac transplantation. And you take a heart from a cold static from a take a cold static cold static stored heart and put it into a recipient sheep. It has a profound effect on the recipient sheep that the kidneys stop, uh, the uh, or the urine turns black. Uh, and the sheep becomes vasoplegic and needs lots of inotropic drug. Whereas if we use a heart implant, a, a transplant a heart that's been on the perfusion system, even for a couple of hours, the recipient behaves totally differently. So something comes out of these donor hearts, we don't know what it is, that affects the recipients. And I think we see exactly the same phenomena in humans. That is... It's the right ventricle that becomes dysfunctional uh, and uh, often the urine, they become vasoplegic and often there is renal insufficiency. So I think the next, the next horizon in cardiac transplantation is hypothermic ex vivo perfusion. You could prolong the ischemic time many, many hours and it also I think it has potential beneficial effects on the recipient by stopping whatever it is that comes out of donor hearts when we perfuse them by cold static storage. That's fascinating. And, and you can imagine the repercussion of uh, prolonging, prolonging ischemic time with, for example, a patient here in Birmingham, uh, not quite finding a match for, you know, several months to years, you know, within the transplant center here within the city, but yet could be, uh, could have a heart available in Atlanta, in New York, uh, or even at some some other parts of the country. I mean, this would really kind of uh, uh, increase the the availability of hearts and increase the potential of transplanting more patients. I mean, this would be phenomenal in, in terms of the clinical repercussion and and may help you know diminish this this demand you know to uh, to um, supply ratio. Yes, and in fact, we are starting a clinical trial in Australia, because Australia is the, is the place to start uh, to, to do such a trial because of the huge geographical distances. Uh, this trial is all ready to go, but it's been, of course, it uh, can't start at the moment because of COVID. But this is the, this is the plan. Uh, there are five heart transplant programs in Australia uh, and we're also, uh, uh, New Zealand are going to be part of this now too. Um, and if there is a donor heart anywhere in Australia where the projected ischemic time is six hours or greater, then the heart will be put on an ex vivo machine and, uh, and brought to whichever transplant centre uh, in Australia or New Zealand is going to use, use the heart. And we've actually been in discussions with Qantas, the uh, airline, Australian airline, uh, that this will be flown on scheduled on a scheduled um, flight because we don't have the pressure of time uh, that we currently have with cold static storage. Now, we're, 
all the all the bits and pieces are in place to start this trial, but unfortunately we can't. But we're hoping that as soon as COVID disappears, uh, then we can start this trial. And I think this will be uh, this this will be a very very important trial to demonstrate that we can safely extend the ischemic time six eight hours and take hearts from donors in remote parts of Australia or you, and ship them to New Zealand or vice versa. Fascinating. We got off track a little bit. Let's go back to the actual surgery uh, that you were just about to start talking. So uh, it's very unusual these days, but there are occasionally recipients who haven't had previous cardiac surgery. Uh, and it, that's a very straightforward transplant uh, procedure, uh, and that operation would take no more than about four hours from uh, start to finish. But invariably, it's patients with complex, con uh, con uh, complex congenital heart disease, uh, multiple previous operations, or they've got an LVAD, uh, or they've had previous cardiac surgery as, as an adult coronary surgery, valgus surgery, and so on. Uh, and so uh, th those operations can take considerably longer because they're often associated with destabilizing bleeding. And that's one of our, what's one of the important uh, considerations uh, doing a heart transplant where there might be a potentially long, long ischemic time, either because of the travel time or, an, or a longer implantation time. Uh, and uh, when we... Uh, uh, after we reperfuse the donor heart uh, in the recipient, uh, if the preservation hasn't been ideal, if there's primary graft dysfunction, uh, and then you add to that destabilizing bleeding, uh, then um, uh, that can really uh, impact um, the patient's post-transplant course and uh, increase mor morbidity and mortality. So part of the Part of the calculation that we've got to make is, for example, we wouldn't we we wouldn't use an older donor heart with a long ischemic time in a patient where we are likely to have a very complicated operation because it's going to set the recipient up for primary graft dysfunction. That's sort of part of the calculation. Then after the um, uh, operation has been concluded, uh, patient goes to the intensive care unit, and from then on, except for immunosuppression and, uh, and uh, uh, microbial prophylaxis, uh, the, op the, the, the recipient's treated very much as, uh, some, uh, as a, somebody else having cardiac surgery. Um, the, the process is very similar. You mentioned there was some difficulties, particularly in matching the size. Uh, now, obviously in children, you know, particularly that have had congenital heart disease, um, you know, they're pretty small. You need, to, uh, you need to match the size there as well. But, you know, so you have a small child and that heart that you just transplanted will grow with that patient, right? That's, that's correct, yes. And, uh, but is there actually some the difficulties in the congenital heart that have had Fontaine procedure and all kinds of, um, you know, uh, surgical procedure already? Is there like a lot of more scars? Uh, do you have to transplant the, the lung as well as the heart? Or is there more difficulties like that in, in the 
well, this applies just as equally to adults uh, as it does to children. Um, in fact, more so. Uh, that you know, there is a there is there is a uh, people talk about this tsunami of congenital heart disease. These patients, this big wave of patients that's going to come through who who uh, have had. Uh, one or more operations as a as a child, uh, where the heart cardiac function is going to deteriorate to the point that they need transplantation. So I don't think it's as big a wave as people are suggesting, but nevertheless, it is true that there's going to be an increased number of patients that, for example, have had Fontan procedures, uh, uh, where uh, they're going to that Fontan procedure is going to fail. Um, and those patients are going to have systemic venous hypertension and all the consequences of that, protein-losing enteropathy and liver disease and ascites. And, uh, and um, those people need transplantation. And I will say that that's often a real challenge to know the, the, the timing uh, because the deterioration patient, let's say with a failing Fontan, is usually very slow over years, and and often um, the people that are looking after these patients don't quite see that this deterioration is occurring because it's so slow, and and consideration about cardiac transplantation often comes a little bit late. And so I will make a point in a patient with complex congenital heart disease who has had, let's say, a Fontan procedure, who is showing the first signs of of a failing Fontan, systemic venous hypertension, first evidence they might be getting some liver disease. That's the time to be at least getting them to a transplant centre so they're on the books. So the transplant centre is aware of them, rather than what unfortunately happens quite a lot. They're at the really at the end of the line. They've got protein losing enteropathy. They're cachexic, the ascites. The liver disease has proceeded beyond just fibrosis, and now it's cirrhosis. They've got uh, collaterals, and um, uh, they've got plastic bronchitis, and all these complications of failing Fontan. So now what happens is that the risk of transplantation increases dramatically. Uh, and the and yes, we may still go ahead and do the transplant, but we've really, we're in that sort of ethical dilemma about do we allocate a, a good donor heart to somebody whose risk of transplantation is inordinately high when it could have gone to somebody of lower risk who's likely to get a better result. So, so yes, uh, the operations can be technically more challenging, the post-operative management more challenging, but I think the bigger issue is getting them referred at the right time before we get into this situation where we've inadvertently increased the morbidity and mortality of the operation. You mentioned, uh, do we have to transplant the lungs? Well, that's that's sort of a really interesting uh, issue because these days, heart-lung transplantation which used to be relatively common in the early days of transplantation, is now a very rare operation. Last year, there were 75 heart-lung transplants worldwide. Uh, and um, often, 
the reasons for doing a heart-lung transplant, even the old days, have disappeared. For example, with people with pulmonary vascular disease associated with heart, uh, with the end-stage heart disease, those patients would not be transplanted. They'd get a ventricular assist device. And then uh, the, as the pulmonary vascular disease regresses, then they can have cardiac transplantation. So they don't need a heart-lung transplant. And also patients with, prior, say, pulmonary arterial hypertension with a very, very adversely remodeled right ventricle, in the old days we would do heart-lung transplant. We know that's not necessary now. We will do a lung transplant and that right ventricle will recover. It won't be, ever be normal, but it will recover. Uh, and so at the Alfred, we do about one heart-lung transplant a year. Uh, but that raises another issue. How do you train surgeons to do heart-lung transplants these days? So it's only the sort of heart, uh, transplant surgeons of my vintage who have done many of these operations. And so it's very difficult to train a young surgeon to do a heart-lung transplant because often these heart-lung transplants can be very challenging operations, particularly when there are multiple aortopulmonary collaterals. And there are some real technical tricks to avoid uh, what can be fatal bleeding uh, doing a heart-lung transplant. So, David, um, you've talked a little bit about the procedure. You've talked about the match and everything. <clears throat> In the United States, we have between three and 4,000 people on the waiting list you know, for a heart transplant, uh, particularly with this uh, COVID situation that we have now. Uh, could you describe a little bit, if I'm a patient on the waiting list, what is the, uh, what is the relationship that, 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 that the patient has with the transplant team? What is the transplant team composed of? How do you do the visit? How do you stay in touch you know, nowadays? Uh, well, it, I'm sure there are differences between countries and programs and how that's all managed. Um, uh, at the Alfred, uh, those patients uh, on the waiting list uh, regularly um, uh, visit the transplant cardiologist. We make sure that there is no emerging contraindications to transplantation. Uh, we, at the Alfred, we uh, in Melbourne, uh, we also have responsibility for transplantation in quite distant areas of Australia, in other states. So we can't uh, bring those patients to clinic visits to Melbourne. Uh, that wouldn't be reasonable. So we do rely on cardiologists in the other states to uh, manage these patients while they're waiting uh, for a transplant and then let, the, let us know if there are any major deterioration uh, that might contraindicate transplantation. But of course, the, the issue here is, uh, should these patients proceed uh, if they're deteriorating to uh, ventricular assist device implantation. Uh, so patients that uh, are on the waiting list but are deteriorating, um, uh, the, those are patients that we would consider for a ventricular assist device transplantation as a bridge to transplantation. So uh, the, the COVID period, I mean, I, we've noticed that the, the heart transplant numbers plummeted here in the United States uh, just because there were so many patients being treated with this infection in the hospitals. Um, I'm sure you observed the same in Australia. Um, as it started to recover, have you seen in your center a um, recrudescence of, of uh, heart transplant activity um, in your place? 
No, we haven't, uh, because in some states in Australia, we're currently undergoing a second wave of COVID. So the number of organ donors has decreased, uh, and because people aren't going out and doing the activities that often turns them into donors. Uh, and um, there are uh, borders between certain states that are shut, which complicates procurement. Now we can go, but we also have some concerns about exposing our team to potential transmission in other hospitals. So we rely on the availability of surgeons in that state to be able to take hearts for us. And that's not all, all the, always the case. Uh, so transplant activity uh, has dropped um, very substantially in, in Australia. Hopefully that won't be too much longer. But let's say the, the patient has had the, their surgery. Uh, they're in the hospital now. How long do they stay in the hospital? What is the uh, recovery period? Um, what does it mean actually to have had you know, a heart transplant after the surgery? Uh, so hospitalization is usually somewhere between 10 and 14 days at the Alfred. That I'm sure that there are other places that uh, uh, may aim for a shorter stay. Uh, we've not been particularly... Um, uh, uh, we're, we're not under any pressure to uh, shorten the stay, but I'm sure in, in the US there are all sorts of financial pressures, pressures to make that stay as short as possible. Uh, that's not the case in Australia. Uh, then the patient is if the, the patient is seen very, very fre frequently at the transplant centre, at our transplant centre for the next three months. If they're from outside our state of Victoria, then they are required to stay in Melbourne for three months uh, before they can return to uh, their home state. And during that time, uh, bio, uh, endomyocardial biopsies are performed on a weekly basis uh, for about for the first about a month uh, before it then becomes monthly. Um, but of course, that's also de determined by uh, the appearance of acute uh, cardiac rejection. Um, and uh, that so that biopsy schedule changes um, if there's rejection and, um, and then we make we need to make sure that the treatment's been effective. And uh, of course, there's uh, there's um, uh, monitoring of their uh, uh, of all the all their usual blood work, renal function in particular, um, and uh, uh, optimization of their immunosuppression. So, what kind of medication you mentioned, cyclosporin? Um, what kind of medication is the patient uh, placed on after transplant? Yeah. Uh, so, um, so I'm going to simplify what is a really a complex regimen. Uh, so they're on a CNI, that is a calcineurin inhibitor drug, uh, and these days it's usually, usually to colimus. Uh, there may be some reasons, uh, which I won't go into the details of, but there are some reasons why sometimes we use cyclosporin rather than to colimus. Uh, they're on a uh, cell cycle inhibitor um, uh, of uh, microphenolate, uh, and they're on steroids. Now, there are certain times when we use a proliferation signal inhibitor, um, such as everolimus, in, in place of a CNI, but that, that we don't need to go into, the, into those details. They're also on antimicrobial prophylaxis uh, uh, 
for uh, depending on their uh, CMV status. Uh, if they're CMV, if they've, for example, uh, they were they were CMV negative and received a CMV positive donor, then they're on a regimen of of um, uh, antiviral drugs, uh, and uh, they're on uh, Bactrim as prophylaxis against um, uh, PCP. Although that that name is now changed, it's now JCJ, I think. So, you know, obviously there are some risks after the heart transplant. Um, you know, you mentioned infection, you've mentioned rejection, and also you've mentioned the cardiac allograft, um, you know, dysfunction or failure. Can you, can you actually um, talk a little bit more about those, um, you, know, how, how, you know, if you have a rejection, for example, how does that manifest itself? What does the, does the patient feel? What are the symptoms, you know, of that? And, and how do you treat it? And, uh, so the, the um, uh, most, the overwhelming majority of uh, rejection episodes are diagnosed by a protocol endomyocardial biopsy and are asymptomatic these days. And I think that's one of the things that, this, that the CNI drug is, uh, uh, has done. It's, it's, it's sort of changed the pattern of rejection. Before cyclosporine, there was a lot of edema in the heart, uh, and, um, it, and which contributed to um, uh, myocardial dysfunction, and the patient became symptomatic, fatigued, and short of breath, uh, and uh, we knew rejection was occurring. But we don't know when it's recurring, occurring clinically now with a CNI. Uh, so the diagnosis is made on endomyocardial biopsy. There's a grading system, depending on whether it's just a cellular infiltrate, whether there's actual necrosis of um, uh, necrosis of um, uh, myocytes, uh, and that's and of course once we start seeing necrosis of myocytes, then that that's a more severe episode of rejection. Um, and there, are, the usual way of treating rejection is just to give a bolus of steroids. Uh, if it's persistent rejection, in other words, it's still there on a on a repeat in a myocardial biopsy or it's recalcitrant, we just cannot get rid of it, then we may uh, use uh, anti-lymphocytic drug, uh, an antithymocyte globulin of some description uh, to, um, uh, to eradicate the rejection episode. I will say, I should have mentioned that when we're talking about immunosuppression, or immunosuppression there is a, uh, a drug that we... Uh, that probably most centers in the US give up front. We have to be, it's a very expensive drug, so we have to be a little more careful uh, with it, uh, which is an IL-2 blocker, declusimab or basiliximab. Uh, and and it's, a, it's made of a real difference. This is about induction therapy. Uh, there's a, a lot of interest in induction therapy. If you, can you, can you prevent rejection from even occurring by giving a heart, by giving this induction drug first. There are many years ago before cyclosporine, we used to give ATG up front, which we don't do now. But the IL-2 blocking drug tends to delay rejection. So you can, you, one of the problems with the CNI drugs is that they are nephrotoxic. And if you've got a patient who's got primary graft dysfunction, 
then you add a CNI, then you can switch the kidneys off. But if you give an IL-2 blocker up front, you don't have to start a CNI for several days, uh, and by which time the graft function improved and renal, renal function is robust. Uh, and uh, so that's a way, with, the, with an IL-2 blocker, um, you can uh, get around the problem of using a CNI up front particularly in the setting of primary graft dysfunction. Uh, so most episodes of rejection can be just turned around simply by a bowl of steroids. Now, there are occasions, it's pretty rare these days, but there are occasions when a patient has what's called a hemodynamically compromising rejection, a HD rejection. That is, they present in low cardiac output, poor cardiac function, and that's a real emergency because those patients are going to die. Uh, and so the, it, you throw everything at a HC rejection, including steroids, ATG, and plasmapheresis. And the plasmapheresis is not necessarily the, uh, all about the treatment of the rejection episodes. It's to get rid of the cytokines that are responsible for the hemodynamic uh, uh, issues that you're seeing that they get rid of the myocardial dysfunction, they get rid of the cytokines that are causing myocardial dysfunction. So we don't see HC rejection very often these days, but when it does occur, it's a real emergency. And then there are patients who have ongoing rejection that we just cannot get rid of. And in those patients, we will consider other modalities such as total lymphoid irradiation or photophoresis. So acutely, immediately after the transplant, you have, of course, the risk of infection and the risk of rejection. Let's talk a little bit about this, this primary graph dysfunction, you know, where it seems like, you know, I guess sometimes it could present as a, a mild uh, reduction of the heart function. Sometimes I guess it could be, you know, moderate and, and affiliated with the ejection fraction of the pump function starting to decrease and causing hypotension. And sometimes it could be very severe, like in the case you described that had the rejection, that had the uh, rejection, you know, where you need something like to support the heart, like uh, ECMO and, and so forth. You know, how frequently do you see this graft dysfunction? Can you predict who's going to develop that? Are there some risk factors to get that? And how do you address that? What kind of treatment do we have for this dysfunction? So primary graft dysfunction is the major cause of mortality and morbidity early after, after cardiac transplantation. And so that's one of the real challenges. If we could get rid of primary graft dysfunction, uh, uh, then the results would improve quite substantially. Because if you look at the survival curves of cardiac transplantation over by era, you see the survival curve potentially uh, uh, progressively increasing, except for early where there's still that early, early hazard of death because we have not made a big impact on primary graft dysfunction. Now, we know that there are certain circumstances where we're setting a recipient up for primary graft dysfunction. An older donor, let's say a 60-year-old donor with a long ischemic time, four or five-hour ischemic time in a complicated operation where you may get destabilizing bleeding. Now, that's just a setup. Um, or, and even make it worse, let's add a small female to a male donor. So that's a set up for primary graft dysfunction. But even with the very best size matching, short ischemic times, 
it still happens. And we don't understand why. And it's not the left ventricle that's the problem, it's the right ventricle. And we invariably see it start in the operating room. So why is it the right ventricle? <clears throat> well, nobody really knows, but perhaps it, it may be related in part to the fact that embryologically the right ventricle comes from a, a, different, a different field from the, the left ventricle. You know, the left atrium, right atrium and left ventricle come from a, in the developing embryo, uh, come from uh, a very different uh, field than, than the right ventricle. And maybe that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a sort of a cellular problem. Uh, and, uh, but it's the, invariably the right ventricle. Uh, and we frequently have to support these patients with, with ECMO for a few days uh, before, uh, before the right ventricle recovers. It eventually will recover, but then you're exposing the patient to the risk of um, mechanical surgery support for a few days. Gene Blackstone uh, did an interesting study, um, and it actually is a previous colleague of yours. I guess he was at UAB with John Kirkland, you know, while you, when you were at UAB. That's correct, yes. Yeah, he was. Uh, he did his studies at. Uh, I understand is at Cleveland Clinic now, and um, he was trying to look at these predictors of mortality. Um, and it seems like immediately post transplant, the patient that had pre transplant mechanical ventilation really uh, had you know were more prone to have problem and an increasing problem immediately post transplant. And I guess it's understandable again pointing toward the. The, the, the ventilation problem, the right ventricle, as you mentioned, uh, but also what was important is in patients that had already some end organ dysfunction, whether it was the liver and their bilirubin, or whether they had already some renal failure or, or renal impairment, tend to have you know more problem immediately post-op. Is that yes, something? I, I, absolutely. And, and, and it's not necessarily the ventilation, but it's probably the reason why they're ventilated. Uh, so the ventilation is a surrogate for low cardiac output. Now, so in, in, in somebody who's got deteriorating circulation to the point that they've got end organ dysfunction, what pathway should that patient be on? Should they go straight to cardiac transplantation or should they go to a ventricle assist device? So the, inf the, the, <clears throat> so the information on that is in and pretty clear. It's they should go on a, mechan uh, go on a mechanical, uh, go to a VAD. Uh, so that end organ function re can recover, and then they can have a uh, uh, have a transplant. That information is pretty clear from the experience with cardiac transplantation in Spain, <clears throat> where because of the organ allocation system and the brain death laws and the um, and the op uh, opt in. Uh, uh, so uh, let me uh, let me back up. So the information is in on the results of transplantation on patients with subsystem, serious subsystem dysfunction, and that is the results substantially inferior to doing pay, to transplanting patients where they have uh, normal subsystem function. Uh, so those patients should not undergo transplantation where they have subsystem dysfunction. Ventricular assist device, recovery of subsystem function, and then transplantation. I think that was also his point. I mean, particularly that there's an impetus to uh, doing patients, more patients, actually the acuity has been raised to patients on ECMO, um, you know, 
leading them to, to a heart. Uh, but you have to make sure that the, the patient stabilized to some degree, having some recovering uh, of their you know, liver as well as you know, kidneys before going to a transplant. And the same thing applies to, uh, to um, ventricular assist devices, that, that if you've got a crashing patient, cardiogenic shock, those patients should not go to a ventricular assist device. They should go to temporary mechanical support, such as ECMO or temporary VADs, until they have recovery of self-system function and then have a ventricular assist device. Uh, and so the same thing applies to transplantation. Well, there is another risk of, you know, post-transplant, and this, this is this vascular, vasculopathy, you know, patients um, developing, you know, coronary artery disease. I mean, so that's why I really like to have the input of Dr. Ahmed, who probably is involved uh, doing all the yearly arteriogram on these patients, because, I mean, obviously, you know, their hearts are denervated, so they don't feel any chest pain or or any angina like our normal patient. Um, what, what is the protocol that you follow at UAB, uh, Mustafa, uh, to really kind of uh, detect and treat this vasculopathy or the development of blockages in the arteries of the new heart? I was enjoying just listening to this, uh, <laughs> this uh, expert commentary. So, Dr. McGiffin, you jump in, um, you know, um, with, with, with anything different, but these are watched very closely. Um, the, the surveillance is done every single year almost uh, when it comes to looking at the arteries and you can get uh, aggressive forms of the same vasculopathy that can affect uh, the rest of the heart. You can get this uh, occur to a severe degree in the arteries and I guess the stakes are so high um, when you do cardiac transplantation that you do what it takes to try and, to try and keep that... Um, that transplant viable. And so one thing is, you know, the rest of coronary artery disease, when the patient normally has a uh, artery blockage, say 70%, and that was just someone without a heart transplant, you would come into the hospital and you may or may not use, you know, different tools to try and see what does that mean? Uh, you know, uh, measuring pressure across the blockage or maybe putting a camera in and, and looking at that. Um, my experience of uh, dealing with, vasculopathy from a cardiac transplant is it's much more aggressive the treatment of it you're, you're much more likely and again this is done in a multidisciplinary fashion this is this is after you know each case is discussed with the, the surgeons the heart failure cardiologists and and ourselves but it, it seems to me there's a there's always a much more aggressive treatment uh strategy, uh, blockages will be stented earlier, surveillance will happen more often, rather than rely on non-invasive tests, there's a more of a, you know, less of a threshold to just jump ahead and look at an angiogram. Um, and so, you know, the usual methods, um, stenting, uh, you know, management of, a, of a development of arteriosclerosis, but I imagine a lot of that is also to do with the develop with the um, immunosuppressant regimen and, and that. Dr. McGiven, do you have anything to kind of add to that? I will tell you, our role as an interventionist is really to discuss with the multidisciplinary team and just be available to to do that aggressively. Uh, what are your thoughts on on that? 
have you so, done bypass, for example? Have you had to do bypasses on cardiac surgical cardiac transplants? I, I have, but let me just just talk about the pathology here. So coronary allograph, uh, cardiac allograph vasculopathy is a very different pathology from traditional non-transplant coronary artery disease, which which is which is uh, non-transplant coronary artery disease tends to be discrete and segmental, whereas cardiac allograph vasculopathy is a diffuse process involving involving the microvessels as well. And as Elaine pointed out, <clears throat> uh, patients with uh, with uh, ca cardiac allograph vasculopathy don't usually get symptoms, although re-innovation of, of the transplanted heart can occur. It's extremely rare to actually get chest pain. Usually these patients are presenting with heart failure, fatigue, or sudden death when they have severe disease. So you're absolutely correct. The threshold for interven intervening on cardiac allograft vasculopathy uh, is a lot more aggressive than with non-transplant coronary artery disease because we know that that um, patients um, uh, can are not going to experience symptoms uh, and that the natural history is for it to progress. And, the, and for severe cardiac allograft vasculopathy, the most effective therapy is retransplantation. I remember um, when I was in Paris um, with uh, my friends, uh, Marie-Claude Maurice and, um, and Thierry Lefebvre, uh, they, had, they had some patients young, you know, in their teenagers that had, had a transplant. And uh, that was back in the days where the cipher, coronary stent, it was the first drug-eluting stent that we have. Um, and, um, you know, these, these patients uh, had had a coronary stent and they were reblocking you know, these stents, like, you know, within months, it was really unbelievable. Um, and um, I guess there are some potential uh, future treatment with maybe drug-coated balloons, maybe that could help. But, but um, you know, it, it is such a systemic disease and it's so aggressive. You know, the, the rate of restenosis of, the, of these arteries uh, that, you know, probably the ultimate treatment is a retransplant in these patients, as you said. Yes, although uh, it's 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 the microvascular disease that's part of this picture of cardiac allograft vasculopathy that that uh, is one of the problems that make it not such desirable disease for intervention. Um, now, you know, having said that, um, you know, cardiac cardiac allograft vasculopathy is a major problem. It's it's. It, it appears in about 50% of patients by five years, but it's not necessarily, that doesn't translate into 50% of patients at five years are going to need a retransplant because in some patients it can, it can stabilise. Um, in some patients it can be rapidly progressive, but that's probably the, the, the lesser of the two. And in some patients it can remain stable but it needs needs regular surveillance either by coronary angiography or intracoronary ultrasound uh, or or ct any particular risk factor to develop this uh, vasculopathy i mean an older donor heart or an older recipient or patients with diabetes yes well there are the traditional uh, uh risk there are the traditional um uh, risk factors atherosclerotic risk factors of you know, 
uh, older donor heart, uh, or, or, or older age and smoking, and et cetera, et cetera. But then there are the, um, there are the uh, uh, other risk factors associated with transplantation that, that are responsible, such as acute rejection, primary graft dysfunction, uh, which appear in lots of risk factor analyses. So somehow uh, they're related. Now, Mustafa added, uh, asked a question about surgery for coronary allograft vasculopathy. I have, for, I have done it, but I suspect that it wasn't cardiac allograft vasculopathy. It was pre-existing donor disease because it was, because it's incredibly rare for cardiac allograft vasculopathy to be amenable to coronary bypass surgery. So it probably was pre-existing uh, uh, coronary artery disease in the donor. Interesting. So that's why it's so important for these patients to be screened for transplant because lifestyle modification is really uh, very, very important. These patients make sure that obviously they don't, they don't go back to smoking or they don't smoke at all. Make sure they check their blood pressure, make sure they, they, they exercise on a regular basis. Um, you can, after all, you know, have a pretty normal life after a transplant, isn't it? I mean, you can, you can exercise, uh, you can have, can w women have children? It's a bit more complicated. Uh, what kind of, what kind of um, normal life do you have? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, Dr. McGiff, you've got some, uh, you've got your own uh, experience with uh, people flying, correct, after transplantation? Uh, that, that's correct. Uh, so quite a number of years ago, I was approached by the Federal Aviation Administration uh, to see if it was possible for general, avia general aviation pilots, so this is non-commercial, non-airline pilots, general aviation pilots uh, to safely uh, fly because uh, cardiac transplantation is a, uh, is a disqualifying condition for a medical certificate to fly. So we did a very, uh, very sophisticated, detailed analysis uh, at UAB when I was there based on the cardiac transplant research database. What's the probability of dying uh, suddenly? Uh, and for about 25% of recipients, that risk was incredibly low, as low as normal population. Uh, uh, so we established a number of criteria that had to be satisfied. Uh, and if those criteria were met, then uh, the FAA agreed uh, that those um, general aviation pilots could get their medical certificates back to fly. Uh, but they had to be undergo annual re-evaluation. And very recently, I was at the FAA because we wanted to look at all the pilots that have been recertified, and there were, there were in fact, 20 of them. And all of them um, uh, are doing well. There have been no deaths, no aviation incidents or accidents, which is, of course, our, what's our major concern. So uh, for those people that satisfy, so those pilots that have had a heart transplant that have satisfied these quite strict criteria, uh, it is very safe for them to get their medical certificates back to flying. Can, can you have a pregnancy? Yes, we don't encourage it, but, but uh, yes, the answer is it, it can be done. It Close can be done, but not encouraged. 
Yeah, so it's, I think it, we can see that, you know, it's so important to have a, a good lifestyle. You know, lifestyle modification is so important to prevent maybe the complication like vasculopathy. Now, thank you very much, David. Well, this, this concludes our podcast on cardiac transplantation. I want to thank uh, David McGiffin, you know, from the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, Australia, and Dr. Mustafa Ahmed at UAB. Thank you, gentlemen. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.